Hey there, it's Jason. Welcome to the Jason Wright Show, where the mission is very simple. It is to improve always in all ways. Look, I am on a mission to create the absolute best version of myself. And through the Jason Wright Show, I let you know everything I'm doing to make that happen. I interview incredible, remarkable, brilliant individuals from all different walks of life. And I also try to bring you tools, tactics, and protocols that will help you in your own personal mission to improve always in always. Now, let's get started. Hey, folks, before you get started, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go out to jasonrightnow.com or improvealwaysinalways.com. Click on the courses button and check out the Vitruvian Lab app. This is my personal development app. You can take courses on your phone, through the app, or on your desktop or laptop. It doesn't matter. Wherever you are, the Vitruvian Lab is with you. And now, if you join the Inner Circle for $29.99, you can have each and every course there is in the Vitruvian Lab app. That means that like my flagship course, Massively Transformative Habits, hours and hours of content on how to understand how to better develop a growth mindset, create and break habits, have goal setting that will actually end up resulting in the goals you want to achieve. All of it. It's right there. It's a $500 value and you get it just for being a member of the Vitruvian Lab Inner Circle. And here's the best part. You have free access just for signing up for 14 days. So if you jump in there, crush as many courses as you want for free and then get out. I don't want you to. I want you to stick around. I'm always going to be updating the lab with incredible new content, courses, and training. This is the way I can scale my personal training. If I cannot work with you one-on-one, then this is a way we can do that. And there are some hybrid ways to do that where we can work together in person, but also when I'm not there, the lab is. So please check it out at jasonrightnow.com. Click on courses, check out the, the lab app, or just go to the Google Play Store or Apple App Store and download the app right now and start looking around, looking at the courses, join the inner circle, take some classes, and check out the Vitruvian Library. That's like my personal swipe file. It's got everything, all the research, everything that I use to develop my courses, a lot of the, the content that's in the Vitruvian letter, my, my personal newsletter, all of it. It's right there. It's yours for the taking. So check it out. And now enjoy this incredible conversation with Dr. Gad Sad, author of The Sad Truth About Happiness. Thanks for listening. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to The Jason Wright Show. Uh, I, I'm not even going to pretend like I'm playing it cool. I just talked to Dr. Sad, and I told him the same thing. I'm not even going to try to act like I'm, I'm cool on this deal. I am so freaking pumped because I have one of the best thinkers, the funniest academics, the funniest dudes that there is out there right now, and a great and important voice with a new book that is absolutely fantastic on I think you just completely distill the art of happiness with your new book, Dr. Sad. And so without further ado, I'm going to put you on here. Welcome to the Jason Wright Show, sir. 
Oh, thank you so much for that lovely uh, introduction. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I look forward to a great chat. Okay. Well, so here's where I think we should really start with this, because I think one of the coolest parts of your story, you know, people that aren't as familiar with you, and by the way, I became really familiar with your work and who you were during the pandemic. You, you for me, that's whenever, and I just, I stumbled upon you. You came up in probably my YouTube feed, and I was like, I love what this guy is saying. And the coolest part about it is you're wicked smart and you're funny. And you and I share a love of well-timed and placed sarcasm. And so it just resonated with me. And so I've been listening to you ever since. And then whenever your publicist reached out and said, would you be interested in having uh, Dr. Sad on the show? I'm like, oh my gosh, this, this, I mean, this is like a moment for me. Dr. Sad, it really is. I mean, that was so honoring. You're very kind. You're well, very kind. I, I mean it. So I want to start with your story and kind of, because I think the your Genesis story has a lot to do with your appreciation of this topic that is happiness, which is what we're going to cover with your book. But just give this audience a little bit of understanding of your background and who you are and where you come from. Sure. So I was born in Beirut, Lebanon. We were part of the last steadfastly remaining Lebanese Jews. There was a very, very small community of uh, Lebanese Jews uh, that had remained in Lebanon, despite the fact that it was becoming increasingly you know, more precarious to be Jewish in the Middle East in general and in Lebanon in particular. And so uh, even though my extended family had all left either to France or to some, some to Canada, most to Israel. Uh, we we had remained in Beirut, and then in 1975, uh, when I was 10, uh, the war, the Lebanese civil war broke out. So I was there from the age of 10 and 11 in Lebanon. The first year of the civil war, uh, it was a horrifyingly brutal war. It's 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 all butchery is judged against the standard set by the Lebanese civil war. And so after a year, you know, the first year in the civil war, we knew that it was no longer feasible to, to be in Lebanon. We didn't have a future there. We had, you know, we, we were facing death at, you know, every second of every day. And so we were lucky enough to leave and uh, emigrate to Canada at the age of 11. And so that, that experience of what I went through in the Lebanese Civil War it really serves as the impetus of, well, all of your experiences are part of who you are and who you become. But in, in my previous book, In the Parasitic Mind, I talk about my story because it allows me to then warn the West about what happens when you organize a society along tribal lines along identity politics, right? Because Lebanon is the perfect manifestation of what happens to a society when everything is viewed through the prism of your religious identity. And so that was the reason why I discussed it in the parasitic mind, also to tell people that, look, uh, you know, don't whine with your boo-hoo-hoo victimology story because you were misgendered at uh, Starbucks. Some people have gone through more difficult times. And of course, then what that does paradoxically, and actually not paradoxically, if you spend a few minutes thinking about it, is that going through such a difficult uh, childhood allows me to have a completely renewed sense 
of gratitude at having gotten out of there miraculously, right? So already the fact that you exist is an infinitesimally small probability, right? Uh, in, in a typical, if I can be physiological for a second, in a typical male ejaculation, there are 250 million spermatozoa, and a woman has between one and two million eggs that she starts off with, only about 400 of which will ever you know, uh, be fertilizable through her ovulatory cycles. So the chances that, you know, Jason Wright or God Sad exist is just a statistically improbable case. Couple that with the fact that when you're born, you can go through something that I went through in, in the Lebanese Civil War and other trials and tribulations that I have, then that contextualizes anything that I feel in any given day. Even now, this past 24 hours have been incredibly difficult because my humor, which you so kindly pointed to, has apparently gotten me into trouble with the Quebec language police. Uh, and so they've been coming after me in a truly relentless manner. Uh, but yet I can kind of, you know, rub it off my shoulders because I say, hey, if I faced the Lebanese civil war and I got out of there, you're not going to scare me with your cancel culture. So yes, going through early childhood stressors can actually make you more resilient. Well, and speaking of your humor, and I actually heard you mention that yesterday whenever you did your excellent retort to uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. <laughs> that was awesome uh, and beautiful. I thought you looked lovely. I mean, thank for, you. For those of you I, who I, haven't I, seen the video, you know, you make a great gal, man. The lipstick and all, brother. It was even with the beard, right? I'm it, still a pretty woman with the beard. Well, you know, women these days grow beards. It's weird. So, you know, why not? Why not? Well, sure. I did. I, and whenever I, I wanted to tell you, I heard you mention on there that you were going through and you didn't mention the details of it. And I just, I commend you for having the courage. And one of the things is that's, that a lot of people won't understand Dr. Sad about you. I know now because I've studied you long enough, read your books, I get you there because you don't say everything that the ideological far left agrees with you don't fall in line and you are in academia they want to try to paint you like they do jordan peterson is is yep. hateful or whatever but really the it's quite the opposite you're a fun-loving guy that is just smart enough to while you take life seriously enough to be disciplined and successful you realize based on that background you just described that life's too short to be miserable which leads me into what i wanted to ask you before we start talking about the book which deals with happiness is why do you why especially as someone who is an evolutionary psychologist and a scientist why are we so damn miserable right now when in my opinion this is the greatest time to be a human being in the history of mankind why are we so miserable well, I mean, we can talk about the unique misery that, you know, people are experiencing today, but the reality, frankly, is that people have always had difficulty in instantiating their full, you know, happiness potential. And the proof of that is the fact that if you look at the singular topic that philosophers have discussed most frequently throughout the millennia, it is the prescription of how to live a good life, how to be uh, happy. And so the fact that that is the singular topic that people and thinkers talk the most about is a reflection of the fact that we've never gotten it right. So yes, there might be unique challenges. You know, maybe social media is making us more miserable today, and that wasn't the case in ancient Greece. But I can tell you that the 
the, the summiting of Mount Happiness is not something that comes easy to people precisely because there are so many behavioral and emotional, you know, traps, minefields that are difficult for most people to navigate through, right? I, I could, you know, I mean, we could get into the details of what I'm going through right now with the cancel culture in Quebec or not, but I can tell you this, I could either choose to turn this into the biggest tragedy and, and, you know, be living in fear and being angry and sad and depressed about what's being happening, what's happening to me. Or I could say, no way are you going to interject yourself in my moment of glory when I want to be talking about great ideas. I want to be sharing these prescriptions of happiness. I want to be having wonderful conversations. You're not going to serve as an emotional terrorist in the dignity of my life. And so, you know, Epictetus, the famous uh, Stoic, uh, and more generally all the Stoics, probably their singular most important tenet is that oftentimes what hurts you the most is not so much the event that happened to you, but rather the way that you respond to that event. And so to the extent that you can't control the event, but you can control your response to the event, then it is somewhat within your control how you feel on any given day, right? And so uh, this is one of the reasons why I try to empower people in this book. Yes, about 50% of our happiness scores that vary between us come from our genes, right? I may be born with a sunny disposition. You may be born with a more sullen disposition, but notwithstanding our original starting points due to genetics, that still leaves 50% up for grabs. And so what the book is about is the, the types of the quality of choices and decisions that you make and the mindsets that you adopt can really move you along the continuum of happiness. That's one of the things that I think is so important about the book is because, okay, going back to what we were laughing about previously, Neil deGrasse Tyson, he talked about the pursuit of happiness. And it appears that the prescription for much of modern society is all backwards. The prescriptions for happiness are all external and or feeding the inner parts of you, kind of that, uh, I guess, you know, the, the Jungian shadow self, the worst parts of our shadow self feeding those as opposed to the best. And what your book does is, it, in my opinion, it describes if you're going to truly pursue happiness, you're going to have to understand that, first of all, struggle is good. I remember listening to this, uh, and I love to hear, and this is the thing, too, that was so awesome about reading your book is that so many of the topics... <laughs> Man, we're kindred spirits. I'm not. I don't have that big brain you have, but it made me feel good about myself because so many of the things that you disp or that you talk about, uh, like even your movie choices. And I want to talk about some movies. Your movie choices, the fact that you are obviously a student of Stoic philosophy, you know, and you mentioned it. One of my favorite quotes that I use over and over on this show and in my writing is, "He who conquers his mind conquers the world." Zeno, the father of Stoic philosophy, that is where it all begins. And what your book does is it teaches you about those pursuits. And a lot of it does require some struggle. And I always say this, uh, Dr. Sad, is that if you look back over the happiest moments of your life, the biggest ones, I mean, those really big consequential moments, rarely does it have to do with you feeding some just hedonistic indulgence. You know, sure. I'll, I'll never forget that buffet that I crushed. You know, I'll never forget the time that I slayed three chicks in one night. I'll never. I, you know, I got so drunk that I couldn't even speak my name. It was amazing. No, it's usually I said I worked my ass off and I got the professorship. 
I yes. worked my ass off and I put myself through college. But to tell today's modern postmodernists that, hey, part of your happiness is going to require some struggle. They think you're not supposed to hurt. You're never supposed to hear anything you don't want to hear. You're never supposed to struggle. And that just kind of, and it goes into one of my favorite chapters of your book, just kind of going in, in, um, in sequence is finding the right job and finding the right partner. The partner one I thought was real important. So talk a little bit about kind of why struggle from an evolutionary perspective? I want you to take your, I want your scientific right. take on this. Why does that feed into our long-term happiness? And then how we can take that into our relationships because it's so, it's fighting through those struggles that can bring people closer. So talk a little bit about sure. that struggle aspect. So the, so I'll start with the resilience stuff, the anti-fragility stuff. So I have a chapter, I think it may be chapter six, uh, titled on persistence and the anti-fragility of failure. And so there what I'm arguing, and, and that chapter, I open it up to go back to our uh, ancient Stoic friends. I open it up with an epigraph from Seneca. And Seneca had said that, I mean, I'm paraphrasing his words. I don't have the direct quote in front of me, but he said that strong trees that have deep, well-entrenched roots are those that have been exposed to severe wind stressors because it's precisely that stressor that allows them to then not be brittle. On the other hand, trees that have not been exposed properly, optimally to the, to the wind stressors are brittle and they break easily. So I first used this idea in my previous book, in The Parasitic Mind, where I was talking about you know idea pathogens that, that can infect human minds, parasitize human minds, I argued that when we are creating echo chambers, both in our societies and in our, say, universities, whereby being exposed to an opposing idea, being exposed to mockery, to humor, to satire, can make you completely crumble, and therefore you try to create a sterile environment where everybody agrees with you, that is the perfectly incorrect thing to do for developing your critical thinking because you want your mind to be anti-fragile to opposing ideas. That's what makes me someone who is better in rhetoric. That's what allows me to yesterday use both my knowledge and my humor to dismantle the lunacy of Neil deGrasse Tyson with his gender spectrum nonsense, you know, right? So having an anti-fragile set of stressors is needed in order for both your body and your mind to optimally function. And then of course, it, it's not difficult to see why that would lead to happiness. If my mind and body are functioning optimally, then that all other things equal, of course, that's going to make me happier. Now, before I go on with some additional points, let me go back to the parasitic mind. There I talk about a principle from evolutionary medicine, which basically argues that it's called the uh, hygiene hypothesis. It basically says, take for example, children who either grow up in very sterile environments, no pollutants, no allergens, no pet dander, versus those who've grown up with pets on farms with a bit of dust, with a bit of allergens. Guess what happens, Jason? The, the kids who have grown up in the sterile environment have a much greater incidence of autoimmune diseases, including, for example, asthma. Whereas the kids who've grown up exposed to allergens are less likely to have asthma. Now, why is that? It's because your immune system, in order to optimally function, needs to be exposed, needs to be triggered 
by these allergens in order to build the best possible response. So now let's go back to happiness. Almost nothing that you can do that is of substance, that grants you purpose and meaning, comes to you because it's easy, right? I ran two marathons in 1985 and 86 when I was a soccer player. I did it simply because it seemed like a stressing thing to do. It seemed like I wanted to test my body to see if I could take that punishment. And I successfully completed it. When I was deciding on what to study in my undergraduate, I decided on mathematics and computer science. Not because I necessarily thought that I would become a professor in mathematics, even though you know I was I was quite gifted in mathematics. It's because I knew that by definition, if I was going to live an intellectual life, if I were if I'm if I was going to become an academic, therefore I need to train my brain maximally, then what better way to train it than studying the hardest and purest possible field, which is pure mathematics, right? So I didn't study, you know, uh feminist glaciology and you know underwater lesbian dance. It, not because I'm just mocking those fields, it's because those fields are not going to give me the same analytical rigorous training that mathematics would. And by the way, if you do an analysis of some of the most famous and accomplished academic psychologists, you will find that many of them come from a math background. Now, they may not have explained it using the language of anti-fragility and resilience, but that's exactly what they were doing. They were picking something difficult that would challenge them so that they can develop that ability, that immune response, if you'd like, okay? And so nothing that you can do is not littered with potential failures. That's why when I talk about the anti-fragility of failure, I'm saying that you can't simply break away and die off because you faced a rejection. And so I have a section in the book, which you may remember, where I try to find the absolute greatest of all time individuals in different fields and then demonstrate how before they became the successes that they are, their lives were littered with failures and rejections. So let's take a few. Steven Spielberg, arguably the big, the biggest uh, living American filmmaker, was rejected three times at the USC film school. Lionel Messi, the greatest soccer player of all time, was told that he would not be a professional, never mind the greatest soccer player of all time, he wouldn't become a professional soccer player because he was too short and small and slight. Zinedine Zidane, arguably the greatest French soccer player of all time, was told by the Algerian coach because he had the ability to play by ancestry for Algeria or for France. The Algerian coach had looked at him and said, this guy is too slow. He turns out to be the greatest French soccer player and World Cup winner. Michael Jordan, arguably the greatest basketball player of all time, was cut was rejected, was removed from his sophomore high school junior team. Now imagine if each of these people at the point of their rejections had said, ah, this is too hard, let me get out. We would have never known the magic of Michael Jordan, of Lionel Messi, or J.K. Rowling, who was the, the author of Harry Potter, the greatest author of all time in terms of sales, short of the Bible, that was rejected by every single publisher until that last publisher that accepted her. And so nothing that you can do that is meaningful comes without the pain of you know, uh, rejection. And therefore, what defines you as a great person is to be able to overcome that, get back on the proverbial horse, and then win at the game of life. 
Well, and I was listening to uh, your, your book where you mentioned the guy that uh, went about, what was it, a thousand days of rejection yeah. as yes. an experiment. I think that's genius. And amazing. Oh, yeah. And, and because what, what you realize, I, I talked to James Altucher about this uh, on his show. I was like, you know, the cool thing about that we, if you set up these moments, like for me, here, here's one, an example I use. It was kind of Tim Ferriss's experiment where you go and you ask for a discount just randomly as a way to build confidence. And you can set up, we play such high stakes on such low stake moments that if you can get used to these small little rejections, then especially for somebody like me, uh, doctor said, I grew up with a very fixed mindset. I was a performer. There was a time if you, if I had had this podcast, well, I wouldn't have had it if I was still in that, that zone, because I would have been speaking to you and I would want to try to make you think I'm brilliant. I would want you to think that I was just as intellectual as you. Well, now that I've overcome my fixed mindset, it still pops up every once in a while. I'm willing to take chances. I'm willing to come on here and talk to someone like you who has a much greater intellectual bandwidth than me and be just the learner, not be the guy that has to look cool, has to look good and look how smart I am. And I think whenever these folks are being set up to never hurt, never feel pain, they're, it's, it's literally training them to develop a fixed mindset and lessen the chances that they will take. And I think that is just a tragedy that whenever you are not pursuing happiness with the understanding that rejection will happen, but you're not going to die from it, that that's part of the game. And it, and it, and it forces you, I think, to, to enjoy the journey. I remember you talking about, and, and just so the audience knows, Dr. Sad has actually experienced, as amazing as he is, some rejection whenever you were trying to get into some of these doctoral programs. And and then now, it's, it's almost weird. The more successful you become, Dr. Sad, the more rejections you're going to see. But I think what you're going to realize, I think you've kind of outgrown a lot of those, those right. clubs, for lack of a better word, than you otherwise would have because you're kind of moving beyond that realm. And I think that's a really cool thing. And I just want to commend you on your ability to have that change of mindset because uh, it's very, very difficult to have meaningful conversations if you always think you're the smartest and most knowledgeable person in the room, right? Uh, and th that's actually a trait that I find personally deeply distasteful, right? I mean, I could sit down with even family members who know more about psychology than me, know more about authoring than me, know more. So if I were a dentist, they would know more about teeth than me. If I were a cardiologist, they'd know more about the heart than me. So they're talking down to me. Now that creates a really uh, poor environment for communications because if you know more about anything than me, then how can we have a meaningful conversation? You're a know-it-all. Now, as you correctly pointed out, when you kind of switched your mindset, it takes humility to write, right? I mean, one of the things that, I mean, it sounds like a cliche, but one of the things that really knowledgeable people know is how little they know, right? Because even though I may know more than most, I actually know how much knowledge there is out there and how little of it I know. And therefore that keeps me quite humble and grounded and one of the one of the things that makes me most stressed it's just to take a little tangent whenever I, I i mentioned this in the book whenever i go on a trip as i will be doing tomorrow one of the biggest stresses is deciding which books to bring on the trip because i've got 
three, four, five hundred books in my personal library that I've yet to read. And I become so stressed. I face this choice paralysis because I can't decide what's the, the best book to bring. And, and the reason why I feel so stressed is because I say there are th these hundreds of books that are in my private library that contain incredible knowledge that have not yet gone into my brain and that stresses me. So a really humble person does exactly what you've done, which is they open themselves up to at times teaching, at times learning. By the way, that's exactly why I think Joe Rogan has had the astronomical success that he's had, right? Yes, he's an opinionated guy. Yes, he's got strong positions, but he's also humble enough to listen to others, to grant you the forum, to be able to discuss back and forth. So his openness, his inquisitiveness, his curiosity has allowed him to build this incredible podcasting empire. So kudos to you for having the humility to have had that change of mindset. Well, I appreciate that, Dr. Sad. And I tell you what, it has opened up a lot of possibilities to me. And I want to go back to what, what it's opened me up to is realizing who I truly am. And I know you talk about that in the book. And that's one of the things that I think it's so hard for us, one, to take off the mask, you know, going back to, to Jung and, and figuring out who we really are, because we might not like what we see. It might scare us. Or we find out that the image we've created to the outside world and they have thus reflected that. Like for me, I was supposed to be this smart entrepreneur. And the reason why I got my MBA, Dr. Sad, I, okay, I did my, I was the first member of my family to go to college. And I went to a small uh, state university, Stephen F. Austin State University, and the oldest town in Texas. And I always had this chip on my shoulder that I needed to go, get as close to a brand name MBA as I possibly could. Had nothing, I mean, I was self employed at the time, it wasn't going to advance my career. But because I was still in that fixed mindset and I need to look smart and I need to be validated, I went off to SMU and got an MBA. And I used right. to do crap like that all the time. Now I don't. Now what I do is I look at what I really want to do and who I really am, which is I love to communicate. I love to ask questions. I love to learn. I fully empathize with the book situation. I've got two bookshelves back here. I mean, I love my library. But part of the, the the situation I face is which one do I grab next? You can only read so many books in your lifetime, and I cannot I cannot subscribe to he's 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 brilliant, but novel Ravikant saying just read the same books over and over and over. I get it, and I think it's a great idea, and I do have a certain amount, but I'm still like, what else am I not reading? Right. Whenever you discover who you really are, then it puts you in a position to do the things that are really going to bring you joy. Like I mentioned, I think you mentioned to. Um, to Joe Rogan, that's how you met Russell Tompkins Jr. Is you put yourself out there and you ended up doing your podcast and getting on podcasts and kind of getting out of the classroom. Well, look at me for crying out loud. And to anyone listening, don't look at like, look at me, but look, you if you will put yourself out there and be honest with yourself and find yourself doing the things that really bring you joy, you might be where I am right now, talk to, talking to one of the most brilliant minds that's out there and on, a, on your podcast. And I mean, you're like, a, I'm like a little kid, man. I'm like Forrest Gump here. You know, <laughs> you know, I, I, you're, you're very kind. That's very sweet. Uh, look, you're exactly right about uh, the the possibilities that having an open spirit afford you. Uh, 
if you want, I do you want me to share the Russell Tompkins story? Please do. I love that story. <laughs> so that story, I tell it in the book in the context of uh, you know persistence, uh, the importance of persistence and grit. And so in 2001, I think it was. So I, I was a visiting professor at University of California, Irvine for two years. And when I first went to UCI, UC Irvine, I, you know, I was somehow under the gross uh, uh, misconception that uh, I could somehow at least explore the possibility of hosting the stylistics for a private concert. Uh, the stylistics are part of a genre of music that was uh, big in around the Philadelphia area in the late 60s up to, say, mid-70s. It's, it's called the Philly Sound. There were two particular music producers that created this very, very sexy soulful type of soul music at, at the time there were if you like three compete i'm taking a tangent but it might be fun for your audience there were three types of soul music there's the the motown sound out of detroit there's the memphis sound southern soul and then there's the philly sound and so i'm i'm partial to the philly sound of which probably the most famous group is the stylistic so you know i'm, I'm a kid listening to some of these uh, beautiful uh, songs by the stylistics and so when i moved to California, I thought, you know what, why don't I just contact the management team? Because, you know, stylistics now are no longer as famous as they were in the 60s and 70s. Maybe I can actually, you know, I'm some fancy schmancy professor. Maybe I can actually afford them because I've always had this fantasy, Jason, that I would come out to this, you know, my private garden with you know, some of my friends and, uh, uh, you know, at, this evening I'd be wearing this kind of uh, velvet uh, suit with a nice bow tie. I go up to this microphone and I just say, ladies and gentlemen, the stylistics, and then they start playing. And so that kind of childlike fantasy that I had caused me to have the audacity to actually contact the management team of the stylistics to see how much they would cost. And then I quickly had to eat a big, big, big piece of humble pie when I realized that apparently I don't make so much money as a professor because I could not afford the stylistics to be playing for me privately at a private party. Now, fast forward about 15 years later, we're around 2015, 2016. I now have a, a show that's sort of picking up. It's becoming really popular. So I thought, oh, why don't I contact the management team and see if I can invite Russell Tompkins Jr., who's the lead singer of the Stylistics, for a chat. I've invited all sorts of really cool people. Maybe he'll accept. I tried once, twice. I wouldn't get anything. Now, my daughter hears of this, and uh, you know, she both my all my children have grown up listening to this soul music. And so she's around maybe eight years old at that time. And as kids can be, sometimes they have a lot of wisdom and they can be quite persistent. She kept sort of nagging me call them. Have you called them again? Call them again. Email them. And so one day I'm sitting, it's a Saturday morning. I'm sitting watching uh, British soccer. The landline rings and, you know, the landline seldom rings and we still have the, you know, the, that caller ID. And so my daughter runs, picks up the phone, brings it to me. And I see on the <laughs> caller ID, Russell Tompkins. <laughs> and so, so, so now, I, now I have to take a deep breath uh, and I pick up the phone. I go, hello. He goes, hi, this is Russell Tompkins Jr. May I speak to Professor Saad, please? And so literally my words were, oh my Lord. <laughs> so now we start chatting 
he says, oh yeah, you know, I'd love to come on your show, whatever. So we set it up. He comes on my show. You can go watch it on my channel. He even starts singing without me having asked him the, my favorite song by the st stylistics, the song is titled, You Are Everything. About fast forward about six months later, after he had come on my show, or maybe about four months later, I think it was in June, uh, I was giving a, I was going to be in a, uh, a panelist in this academic conference in Philadelphia. So I reach out to Russell and I say, hey, Russell, uh, I'm coming to Philadelphia. I don't know if you're free, but if you are, let me know. He goes, oh, tell me the place and time and I'll be there. So here comes Russell to my hotel lobby. We go have dinner. We get into some incredibly intimate moments about his childhood, about my childhood, as if we are two old friends. This guy was singing. In, this guy I'm dancing slow songs to in, in when I came from Lebanon, you know, in house parties in the basement. That guy is in my, in my brain. He's seared. I'm now sitting across from him having a chat. And then he even starts taking me around all over Philadelphia, showing me, oh, this is where we taped this thing. This is where I met, I don't know, Holland Oates. This is where I did this. This is where I did that. And people are coming up to him saying, hey, Russell, I had my first kiss to your song and so on. So it was an otherworldly moment, a truly deeply meaningful moment, which wouldn't have happened had I I mean, I'd like to say it was me who was persistent, but I want to give credit to my daughter who kept who kept being persistent and that persistence paid off. So yes, I could have been afraid of being rejected, but thank God I had a real honey badger daughter and now I can pick up the phone and just text Russell Tompkins Jr. It's unbelievable. Such a great story. And it also speaks to, we, we live in just a really cool time. I mean, we, tr we truly do, man. I mean, like this wouldn't have, this conversation wouldn't have had, I never would have been able to have a conversation with you 20 years ago. And it's one of the things I try to explain to my daughters that have just graduated from, from college. Uh, one, she is now in Atlanta. She just graduated from U University of Alabama. The other went to CU Boulder and now she's in Manhattan. God help her. That freaks out. Oh, God. I uh, know. Uh, imagine me, man, being this fifth generation East Texan with a daughter, my, my baby girl, it, it sending, oh, me, sending me selfies while she's down in, on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan going to her office. Freaks me out. But God bless her. I mean, both of them, it's a double-edged sword. You know, Dr. Sad, you raise these girls, these children to be independent and do their own thing. And then they go and often they do it. And you're like, oh my gosh, you know. Uh, I can be, before you go on, forgive me for interrupting you. No, because anytime. it's really a, a relevant interjection. Uh, not this past uh, spring, but the one before. So uh, my daughter would have been, I think, 13. I hit a two-week period where I felt that I was in a somewhat mild depression. I mean, I say that slightly jocularly. It wasn't really a clinical depression, but I was in a kind of in an enduring state of blueness. It's going to be completely relevant to what you just said about your daughters. That's why I'm telling the story. Because I realized that to my great chagrin, that I think that my daughter had outgrown her doll playing days. Oh. I literally was, I was crushed and in her incredible infinite sensitivity to demonstrate that you know she's still daddy's little girl she then said okay well daddy why don't we go downstairs and you know we can play with the dolls which i know she was just humoring me but paradoxically that even made me more sad because as we were interacting with the dolls i really saw that she was doing it to to placate my feelings but in reality that that developmental stage had passed 
And it was truly like a morning of death because I had lost that time when I can count on, you know, the innocence of my daughter playing with her dolls. So I completely empathize with you. I don't know how I would ever handle my daughter going to Manhattan. If that happens, please shoot me. <laughs> I, I get it. It's tough, man. It's really tough. But and it just, okay, children make me think of probably one of my favorite sections of the book. And there's so many things. It's really hard for me to organize my thoughts because not just did I love the book, but there's just so many things that you and I, I mean, truly kindred spirits. I mean, I kept reading things. I mean, for, for God's sake, you have a picture of Vitruvian man in your bedroom. Yeah. Okay. Yes. My newsletter is called the Vitruvian letter. The reason wow. why is because I too, when you started talking about the polymath, that is Leonardo da Vinci. I'm like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. This guy is a brother from another mother. I had no idea I was related to, 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 the, to someone that is of the Jewish faith. And we do have a lot of Lebanese here in Tyler, Texas, believe it or not. I, said, I mean, this guy, is a, this guy is a brother from another mother for sure. And the, and, and the reason why I chose Vitruvian Man, and it, was, it started reading Walter Isaacson's biography of da Vinci. And I started to learn the history of Vitruvian Man and just this whole idea of perfect proportion. That's why the, then that, that started the Vitruvian Project. And then I shortened that into improve always and always, spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally. And it all had to do with the muse that started with Da Vinci. And then, of course, learning the history of Vitruvian Man and Vitruvius, the architect during the reign of Augustus, and just kind of how it all ties together. It just fits with what you and I, I think, really look at in this human experience and try to achieve. So I'm, I, I'm looking at that. But so anyway, that's my tangent. What, right. But whenever we talk about children, I think it ties neatly into one of my favorite portions of the book, which is regret. And, that's, and I'm very passionate. And again, getting over that fixed mindset has caused me to take aim at getting rid of any and all regret. And I want to tell you, if you'll indulge me for, for just a second, because this is about sure. you, not me, but I just, I, I wanted you to know that I truly get this whole idea. I'm trying to, I've been recruited to run for Congress. At, uh, this was 2017, I guess, 18. And I'm thinking, no, no. And I, you go back and forth. No, I won't do it. And then, you know, a, a sitting senator asked me to do it. And I'm like, no, that's just that, that period of life. It was once something I really wanted to do, but now I don't want to do it. But then I got to thinking about this whole idea of regretting not doing it. Right. And I thought, you know what? I can't lose. And to the listener out there, I want you to listen to this because, and then I want you, there's a specific question I want to bring to you, Dr. Sad, about this. I realized I couldn't lose because if I won, okay, great. That was what I was supposed to do. If I lost, I would never wonder whether I should or not. It, it's, it's done. It's, you can't lose. Exactly. Perfect. And I want to ask you this question. It's also why I married my wife, by the way. And I want to get into, we got to touch a little bit on relationships. I think that's so important and you give such good advice. So hopefully my mind won't race so much that I don't come back to that. But why is it that psychologically speaking, Regret is so powerful because, and this is just how I worked it out in my mind, actually, from your, as I was going through your book, had I not run for Congress, in my mind, I would have won. And that would have increased the regret. I wouldn't even have taken to, into consideration right. a loss, right? When we don't do things because, well, I don't want to give away too much because I want you to talk about the things we 
we regret most in life. Yes. Talk a little bit about that. And then also touch on from a scientific standpoint, why the hell is that, that we look back on the things we didn't do and just assume it would have worked out swimmingly. So right. talk a little bit about that. Sure. And then anything on this whole idea of eliminating regret, because that's a huge, huge point for me. So a lot of people think that regret is a useless emotion because look, uh, so when I ask people at the, I often at the end of my show ask them, "Hey, is there anything that you regret?" And I give them the whole explanation, which I'll I'll give now on your show, uh, regarding the difference between regret due to action versus regret due to inaction. And they often say, "Well, I don't regret anything because everything that I've done, I've somehow learned from." And I find that in most cases to be a bit of a cop out because it's unimaginable to think that you can live a a full life without having regretted anything in your life. Right? That seems a bit uh, unbelievable to me. But in any case. Regret is valuable for several reasons. Number one, there is something called anticipatory regret, which is the idea that, and to your point about when you were thinking about running for, for office, anticipatory regret is exactly what caused Jeff Bezos, the, the founder of Amazon, to decide to quit his very secure, high-paying job and start Amazon when everybody said, are you insane? That would, that's such a risky thing. What is, what are you talking about? And his answer was the reason why I need to do this is because I don't want in the future to ever be in a position where I deeply regret not having done it. And therefore he is the, the regret that he is engaging in in terms of his calculus is an anticipatory one he is choosing the best option based on minimizing the likelihood of future regret so that's so that's one valuable functional value of regret the other regret but by the way before i, I discuss this the second for, the other the issue of regret let me just expand a bit on the difference between regret due to action versus regret due to inaction. And actually, the pioneer of the psychology of regret is one of my former uh, doctoral professors at Cornell. His name is Thomas Gilovich. And what he's demonstrated in you know a whole series of studies is that you know in the short term, people can often regret things of, due to actions. But when you do a long-term perspective, you're looking back at your life and you say, what is your, what are your biggest looming regrets? Usually it's regrets due to inaction. You know, I became an accountant because my dad was an accountant and his dad was an accountant. And my father told me that there's always a market for accountants. And so I've had a very successful career as an accountant, but the reality is I always wanted to be the next Da Vinci. I always wanted to pursue my artistic side and I really hate myself. I so regret that I didn't instantiate my love for art and architecture. That's usually what is the most haunting regret that people have. Now, to your point about the fact that, but sometimes we can, even those, we can do something about it. Well, I tell two stories. The reason the chapter is called, uh, you know, it is never too late. Uh, you know, at sometimes right? I can't remember the exact the title of the chapter because what i'm saying is that even at the end of your life towards the end of your life there are some regrets that you experience that you can still address now if i'm 80 years old and i say i really regret i never became an nba star i want to play in the nba well i can't play in the nba because i'm 80 years old and i'm too short to play in the nba and i'm not good enough to be in the nba but for there are all sorts of other objectives that it's only our mind that puts these obstacles so can i tell you two stories that speak to that brother you can tell me all the stories you want I, I'm, I'm here for it man 
<laughs> like, okay, story one. Both are of the same type. Story one, uh, a gentleman at my university who had escaped just before when the Nazis came into Germany, moved to Canada, had always wanted to become, you know, to study in university, but the, the vagaries of life did not allow him to pursue his education, became a successful businessman. And then in his 60s, uh, when he retired, he said, hey, I'm healthy, I'm, I've got time on my hands, why don't I go and get a bachelor's degree? So in his 60s, when most people are retiring, when, you know, he is old enough to be the grandfather of most of the undergraduate students, he enrolls at my university and pursues an undergraduate degree. Now he's in his 70s. Hey, I'm still, you know, pretty young, pretty healthy, pretty vibrant. I still have a sharp mind. Let me pursue my master's degree. Completes his master's degree. Oh, I'm still feeling good. I'm still not bad pursues a PhD and finishes it, I think, at 91 or 92. I remember the the university newspaper, it was called the Thursday Report, had the front page, finally a doctor at 92 or 91, whatever the age was. And then within a year, I think, he passed away. So here's this gentleman who could have easily said, I mean, are you crazy? I'm in my 60s. You want me to go to university with 20-year-olds? And then he finishes a PhD in his 90s. That's story one. Story two, I had this guy, I had him uh, as a guest on my show last year. Uh, he obtained a medical degree, an MD, in 1955. And then on his way to training as a hematologist, one of the medical specialties, he picked up a PhD in biochemistry in 1967, probably before you were born and around the time that I was born. But his real love had always been physics, but his family had told him when he was first going to university, physics, what, what's physics? That's not, that's not serious. You have to have a respectable, practical profession, become a physician. And so he became a physician. But now he's in his 80s and he decides, I now want to go and cater to that itch, that love that I had 60 years ago in physics. So he goes back to school, starts his whole education again, goes through the whole physics thing and graduates with a second PhD. So remember, he had an MD in 55, PhD 1967, and a second PhD in physics from none other than Brown University, one of the Ivy Leagues, at the age of 89. And as he's talking to me, Jason, he is like a child with his kind of, you know, excitement that he's really looking forward to turning some of his dissertation work into some papers. What does an 89, 90-year-old guy have to do with you know trying to publish a paper he's not some you know hot shot 28 year old graduate student but guess what he is because in his mind he still has all the time in the world so these two stories show you that even in the twilight of our lives it oftentimes is never too late to pursue your your dreams your passion and so that's why i always say live in existentially authentic life. In his case, he didn't live, if, if I can say it, in an authentic life because he decided to succumb to the pressures of the practicality of getting a, you know, a medical degree, whereas his real love had always been physics. And here's the thing I think that makes it so cool about that story that a lot of people just don't get. And I thank God that I got it when I did is that it's the pursuit. It's the pursuit of the journey. It's the, it's, 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 that's when we're in, and, I, and you know this from a scientific standpoint, the greatest dopamine hit is the wanting. The getting kind of makes it wane, right? I mean, it's like the gambler who right before he places the bet, that's when the dopamine release is the highest. 
if he, even if he wins the hand, it's the the dopamine was greater in the wanting. And I've all I've come to this conclusion that uh, there, there is no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, right? When you you mentioned Tony Robbins' rocking chair test in your book, right. and there is no pot of gold next to that rocking chair except for the pieces of gold you pick up along the way. There's two points that I've learned to, to act upon myself is that one, I'm going to try to pick up as many pieces of gold and I'm going to have so much fun looking for them. And then when I get them, brother, I'm going to appreciate them. Uh, I mean, it's like this podcast and the, the books that I've written in my newsletter I'm not trying to be the next Joe Rogan, but the reason why Joe Rogan became Joe Rogan, he wasn't trying to become Joe Rogan, exactly. right? He was just hanging out with his buddies after comedy shows, shooting the shit. And then lo and behold, everybody started listening. And and it's kind of, it, it's, it's just weird, man, when you start to, and this goes back, this kind of ties into one of my favorite parts of your book as well, is um, making life playful. I, I have, now this is something I've always been really good at. I do not mind making an ass of myself. It just, to, to me, life's just not that serious. I mean, it's, in, in my you wife. You put a wig though and put on <laughs> lipstick as a professor. Now that's a playful mindset. Well, that's, a, yeah, that is very, exactly. That's where you really hit the PhD of just no inhibition, baby. You crushed it. And so, but I love that, man, because that's the thing. And I think that's why people are drawn to you is because, and it's, it makes you, it's like trying to get a handful of jello with you on your critics. The same thing that's happened with Jordan Peterson. It's like, wait a minute, we can't just chalk this dude up as to some uneducated rube that's, you know, stupid. Like, no, that's not going to work, you know. And by the way, you know, he's really happy, but he's also very educated. It's just, it's like trying to get a handful of jello, which I yeah. freaking love that, man. But I think this idea of one, You've got to pick up the gold and have fun along the way. And 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 you you touched on it earlier. I'm reading, um, finishing up the book Papillon. My dad wanted me. To, I've, I've been meaning. It's one of those that sat on my shelf for for years. And one of the coolest things about the story of Papillon is every time he would get caught trying to escape from prison, the first thing he would do was start planning his next escape. And yeah. then and then there's the time where he's about to spend what he accounts for is probably five years of solitary confinement, and he immediately figures out how old will I be at the end of that five years, and what am I going to do to make sure that I'm healthy when I get out? Those five years, I'm going to prepare myself. If we start looking at this life as just a trajectory, George Burns, you know, he had books, he had uh, books, bookings on his calendar past his 100th birthday. It's the pursuit, man. It's not, it's not, I've learned that, and I want so many people to understand that it's not getting the thing, it's pursuing the thing. Because here's, it's the, it's the, it's the age old story of why these people that have everything, your, your friend that had the houses and the, the, the Ferraris that he would take and have remodeled and, you know, all fixed up, dude ends up broke. And he's probably happier now, though, too, because you're trying to find that happiness from, el from outside. That Doesn't stuff never lasts. No, oh, a lot of threads there. So first, on to your, regarding your question about the trajectory of life, and then I'll talk about the playful mindset. Uh, there is a, a term which you, you might have heard of, intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. Absolutely. So for example, right? So if you tell me, uh, you know, I'm writing a book for the intrinsic, you know, pleasure of actually putting all my thoughts into a book and having people consume it, 
well, that's intrinsic motivation. If you tell me, you know, I'm, I want to write a self-help book because my goal is to ultimately be rich. And if I sell this book well, I'll get a house in Newport Beach. That's an e- extrinsic motivation. And usually the ones who live an authentic life filled with purpose and meaning are very much intrinsically driven. So even if you look, for example, at my scientific career, I've gone into all sorts of intellectual territories, all sorts of interdisciplinary territories, despite the fact that many people warned me in academia that that was the perfectly incorrect thing to do for my CV. Because in academia, what you're rewarded for is for being a very, very deep specialist. Stay in your lane, keep pumping papers in that very small, narrow field, plus epsilon, plus epsilon, plus epsilon, because that gives you economies of scale. You already know the literature, you already know the methodology, you just keep pumping out papers within that very restrained domain. To me, I said, forgive me, but F that because life is short. There are a lot of intellectual landscapes that I want to visit. I'm not going to be constrained by artificial disciplinary boundaries. And that speaks to our earlier point when you mentioned the polymath and and Leonardo da Vinci. That's why I love him so much because he literally is the Renaissance man, right? He, he He's both an anatomist and a futurist and a engineer and a painter and he's everything, right? He, and a scientist. And that I admire the capacity to be able to navigate through different landscapes. And that really comes from an intrinsic mindset, right? I mean, I didn't think about, oh, uh, you know, how many followers does Jason Wright have? And so I put it into an equation to decide whether he's worth my time or not. I was Thank told, God. hey, <laughs> you know, I just thought, hey, one more opportunity to hopefully have a, a great conversation. All right, sure, go ahead, book me on his show. So it's I'm, I'm, I'm intrinsically driven to a, a fault, but I think that that's a much richer way to live life. Now to your second point about playfulness. So I have a whole chapter titled Life as a Playground. And what I'm arguing there is that one of the most fundamental features of our humanity is the deep desire to play. In the same way that we need to go to the bathroom, we need to drink, we need to eat, we we, we desire to have sex periodically. All of these fundamental drives includes the fundamental drive to play. One of the things that makes us so simpatical with dogs, as I discuss in the book, is the fact that dogs, all they want from you is you know, give me a home, give me love and just play with me. And that's it. We're good to go. I'll do everything else for you. I'll protect you. I'll sniff your bombs. I'll get the cocaine hidden in the car. I'll find you in an avalanche. I'll I'll, I'll get you in a mudslide. I'll, I'll do anything. Just play with me. Pay attention to me. So the drive to play is a fundamental feature of our humanity. And I argue that you can transport that mindset to contexts where you typically wouldn't think that they are conducive to play. So for example, science, the pursuit of science is nothing but one gigantic orgiastic form of intellectual play. Because what am I doing as a scientist? There's a bunch of variables that are floating in this grand puzzle of nature. And I'm trying to find out how do these variables link up with each other? Which one causes which other one? Which one has a feedback loop? So I am engaged in a grand puzzle of nature. That is play. That's what makes science fun. A lot of my graduate students will often get, you know, uh, stressed, but professor, what if we, we run the study and, you know, it, uh, it doesn't support our hypothesis. Well, so what? That's, that's okay. That's also fun, right? Don't worry about it. Let's just go out there and find out what happens. Okay. So 
even in the most austere situation, the most nasty of situations, when I went through the Lebanese Civil War, let's even do worse than that. During the Holocaust, there, there's a great book that was written about how kids were playing, finding a way to play in the most dire and desperate of situation. When I was in the Lebanese Civil War and I would go out to play with my cousin, my parents would tell me, this is, we're playing outside. They would tell me, well, don't cross this imaginary physical line because if you do, that opens you up to the uh, scope, to the, to the visual sight of the snipers and then they'll blow your brain. And so imagine that that's the reality that I faced. I'm gonna play around, we're gonna play soccer, but don't cross this imaginary line because then your head will be blown. But yet we still went out and played despite the fact that death awaited us around every corner. And so if you approach life with a playful mindset, in therapy you can play, in, in the practice of medicine as Patch Adams famously did. One of the most underrated movies of all time, by the way. Exactly. Uh, you know, in, in the Holocaust, people are playing Life is Beautiful, the Academy Award winning movie in 1997, Italian movie. What's the movie about? It's a father trying to protect his son from the horrors of the Holocaust by making it as if the whole thing is just a gigantic play session, right? So by having a playful mindset, that doesn't mean that we don't face trials and tribulations in life. It doesn't mean that I'm always ha 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 playing, but it means that it offers me some inoculation against some of the difficult periods of life. That's why I do use humor and sarcasm and satire, because not only is it a powerful persuasion technique to use when I'm trying to persuade people of an argument, but I also, I also use it as self-medication. The only way that I can go through all of the insanity that I see around me is to mock it, to make fun of it. And that's what happened when I was joking about the Quebec accent, which apparently makes me the most racist, hateful <laughs> immigrant in Quebec that has ever lived and dirty Jew go back to where you came from. You know, I, I, so well said, every single thing you just touched on right there. And the, the thing about it is it's to people just take it all too freaking seriously. And, 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 and also I got to mention too, that you mentioned, I knew you were going to mention life is beautiful when the book, first, when I first heard your story. I said, and, and I realized that you're obviously a movie buff because you're like me, that a lot of your analogies are drawn from movies. And so, and then but before you go, and I know you, I want to get you out of here because I know you got a trip tomorrow and I want to respect that, but I want to go really quickly back to um, relationships, novelty. Sure. And I want to say one, one of the ways I eliminated regret, I said, I would never marry again. I went through a 16 year, horrible, horrible, almost it, it was, it was, it was bad. My, but my, my ex-wife is a wonderful ex-wife, just wasn't really, and she and she's the mother of my children, and I, I respect her. But because of that, I said, I would never marry again. And then one day, I'm sitting there, someone suggested I meet my wife now, who is younger than me, had never been married. And to eliminate regret, I went to coffee with her. And my Lord, Dr. Sad, greatest thing, we've been married now, going on five years, four years, oh, and, and, some and brother, th she is the greatest thing that ever happened. She, she eliminated to the thought. That's why my heart hurts when I hear Bill Maher talk about his, how he loves his anti-marriage stance. I'm sure he's happy, but man, I was him. And except for I, 
it, just to be quite transparent, I didn't have sex. I, I'm, I'm not a player. I'm not that guy. So I just sat around literally bored, um, smoking cigars at the time and watching Mad Men over and over. It eliminated regret. And here's something I want you to just please touch on for this audience. Cause sure. I, I had a conversation with some young men that are not married. This idea of novelty, but instead of going out and slaying a lot of women, you know, have a lot of sex with randos, novelty inside the marriage and learning and understanding novelty within that relationship is one of the most, I'm not saying, you know, for the listener, I'm not saying go get creepy with your wife and scare the hell out of her. No, I'm just saying just learn to truly love on a deeper level with, with your spouse and bring intimacy to that. Talk about why that just has worked through the ages and sustained us as a civilization. Sure. Yeah, it's a great question. So Wilt Chamberlain, the famous basketball player, when when told, my God, what a man you are, you've had sex with 20,000 women. Uh, he said, well, no, it actually takes a lot more of a man to have sex with the same woman 20,000 times. Amen. Uh, so that speaks to, to your question. So look, we are facing, or we've always faced an evolutionary conundrum as, as humans. Because on the one hand, we have evolved the emotional, behavioral, and cognitive systems to want to engage in long-term coupling, which is you know the fancy term for you know monogamy for marriage. And the reason for that is very simple from an evolutionary perspective. We are a biparental species, meaning that men, human males, are actually super dads. We really are very vested in our children, much more so than most other mammalian species. And so therefore, because we are a biparental species and because children, human children, have a very long juvenility period. In other words, it takes a very long time for human children to enter the, their sexual maturity. Then it makes sense for a man and a woman to evolve the, the system of bonding, of attachment. And therefore, it makes perfect sense that we have the desire for romantic love, the fact that we have the physiological and anatomical, you know, the, the reactions that we get when we're first in love, the butterflies, the, and so on, and the lust, the whole thing, the, 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 the tingling in your fingers, your heart racing. Uh, and that's, okay, that's great. So now the problem, the conundrum arises because I don't think it'll surprise anybody in your audience, we've also evolved a desire for sexual variety. So in other words, I want to have one lovely wife with whom I can found a family, but I also am cognizant that there are all these other gorgeous women that I would love to have a, a short-term dalliance. And by the way, while women don't have the same appetite for sexual variety, they too have an appetite for sexual variety. We've both evolved to want sexual variety. So now the question is, if you are now entered in a monogamous union and if you are a moral person, if, if your Darwinian compass does not allow you to violate that union, notwithstanding the fact that you do notice other men and other women who are gorgeous that you would love to have sex with, well, then you can incorporate, to your question, you can incorporate various novelty cues within the, the, the monogamous union, right? I mean, that's why people engage in role-playing. That's why people, you know, have intimate moments in, in different rooms. That's why they do it on different days. That's why they uh, switch up the positions. That's right. So there are all kinds of ways that one can incorporate novelty or, or, or if you like, quasi full variety into an otherwise monogamous union, because that recognizes that it is built within us to also say, oh my God, look at that woman. I would love to have, you know, an hour with her. That's 
totally natural. That's totally normal. Now, of course, some of us will fall prey to that. Others will say, no, I'm committed to my partner and I would never, I couldn't live with myself if I did it. And so that's the conundrum is how do you navigate through the fact that there are two opposing Darwinian pulls that are pulling you in different directions? I can speak for myself very transparently. Uh, it's not as though I'm not the least desirable guy in the world. It's not as though I could have not had opportunities, but I wouldn't have been able to live with myself had I ever violated the, the sanctity of my marriage. And so I can go to bed, yes, sometimes thinking, oh my God, there are so many beautiful women out there that I've never had the pleasure of knowing, but at least I have this incredible woman who is my partner in life, who is my biggest champion, and I wouldn't want to do anything to, uh, to, to damage that relationship. Well, and I, I wanted to bring it up for two points. One, because I, I love the opportunity to honor my wife. She is, tr she, she is what makes me who I am. I mean, turns out that Jerry Maguire's hypothesis was correct that, you know, just the way Renee Zellweger completed him, it's true. A good woman does complete the man. Beautiful. And I love listening to you talk about your wife because you are very honoring to her. And I think that's what men need to hear. I think we get portrayed these days. Men are just stupid buffoons and whatever. And with the ball and chain, that, that pisses me off when I hear any man, either one, compliment a woman he's never going to be with or to refer in a derogatory manner about his own wife. And you've, you're always very honoring to your wife. And I think that's very, very sweet. Okay, I got to get you out of here, but... I've got to do something really quick. Beautiful. So there we are. Recording? Yeah, we're back recording. You know, folks, I just had to take a little bit of a moment there to make sure that you got to see the book, The Sad Truth About Happiness, Eight Secrets to Leading the Good Life. Doctor said, I loved this book. And if you would, again, I, I feel like I'm just completely abusing your time, but just kind of bullet point real quick the book, I, because I'm so, I'm so grateful for your time. I want to make sure that we get, that people understand the book and what it's about. The book is basically a combination of three elements. My personal stories, I've rich, I've lived a very rich and eventful life. And so there are all sorts of lessons. I mean, that's what you know, hopefully being wise is. It's an accumulation of unique experiences. So I situate the narrative of the book with my own personal stories that are always backed up with ancient wisdoms. Here comes Epictetus, here comes Seneca, here comes Aristotle, here, you know, right? And so you've got all this, the breadth of ancient wisdoms that are then backed up by contemporary science. So personal stories, personal wisdoms, ancient wisdoms, contemporary science, put it all together. It hopefully makes for a fun and instructive book. Well, and it most certainly does. And I got to tell you, talk about having fun. I was listening to the book, the very ending, while I was on my mountain bike, riding in the woods. I mean, and it was one of those moments like, how the hell can you not be happy? I mean, I'm I'm out in nature. I've, I'm listening to this amazing book about happiness. It's so good. I cannot more highly recommend it. And it's not just oh, because it's not just because I'm a freaking uh, gadfather, Dr. Sad, you know, fanboy. It, this is a great book for anyone. So, all right. Sit tight, Dr. Sad. I'm going to do a really quick sign off here and then I want to tell you goodbye offline. All right. Boom. Folks, thank you so much for listening to the Jason Wright Show. I hope until we meet again, you will endeavor to improve always in all ways. Dr. Gadsad, thank you so much for taking the time to share your wisdom and thoughts on your unbelievable new book with this Jason Wright Show audience. Until we meet again, folks, I'm out.
Hey, thank you so much for listening to the show. It means more to me than you can possibly imagine. And if you enjoyed it, please consider going out to Apple and leaving us a five-star rating. That would mean the world to me. Also, follow me on Insta at Jason right now. And don't forget, download the Vitruvian Lab app. I mean it. I want to be your personal peak performance trainer. I want to help you improve always and always. Lastly, check out my newsletter, The Vitruvian Letter. You can subscribe at jasonrightnow.com. And until we meet again, please continue to endeavor to improve always in always. I'm out. <laughs>